here. Um, okay, if you're brand new, let me just catch you up. We are third week into a five-week series. And when I say series, I just mean a, a five-week stretch. But what we're doing is we're looking at Jesus, specifically, who is, who is Jesus? How do we find him in the Gospels? What is he like? What is his heart like? What is his character? And so that's what we're doing today. Is Last week, we looked at how G- Jesus satisfies our hunger And we looked at the way he dealt with the disciples and he told them what nourishment really means in spiritual sense. This week we're going to look at Jesus' power. Jesus' power. And so we're going to look at the way he identifies himself through the Gospels and specifically today as being all-powerful. And it's it's one of my favorite passages in Scripture. So let me pray for us and then we'll get right into the Word. Father, thank you for these women. I just pray, God, that you would... Peel back our hearts, peel back our minds, remove all distractions, and penetrate us today, Lord. Teach us what we need to know about you and about ourselves. Father, I pray if we need correction, you would offer that today. If we need encouragement, Lord, offer that today. Lord, if we just need hope and need to understand for the billionth time that you see us and that you're with us, Lord, give us that today. You promise us in Scripture that you will provide everything that we need according to your glorious riches that are found in Christ Jesus. So we come to you with expectant hearts today, Lord, um, trusting you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we are in Mark chapter 4, and you will find that on your handout. If you don't have a handout, just look on with someone else, because we may be out of them. So, Jesus calms the storm. All right, so look at, we're in chapter 4, starting at verse 35. It says, On that day, when evening had come, he, meaning Jesus, said to them, meaning the disciples, those were his 12 followers, he said to them, Let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took with him, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But Jesus was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Another translation says, Don't you care that we're about to die? And he awoke and rebuked the wind, and he said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear, and they said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Okay, um, on that day when evening came, Jesus had been teaching all day long. He was tired, and he got his disciples together, and he said, Let's cross the Sea of Galilee to the other side. Now, let me tell you what this means. Um, Jesus, I stayed connected to this microphone, I just realized. Uh, when he said, Go across the other side, the longest part of the Sea of Galilee is 13 miles. The widest part is 8 miles long. Most scholars think they were going, because of where we find out that they land, about five miles was their journey. Now, some of these disciples are fishermen, Peter being one of them. They know what a condition of a sea looks like. Do you know what I'm saying? And so when Jesus says to them, get in the boat, we're going to go over to the other side. I can assure you, and this is my interpretation at this point, is that they're probably smart enough to look at that sea and see that it's calm 
and see that they don't smell. You know how when rain's coming and you can smell it, the clouds roll in? You have prompt time. I mean, rarely do we just get blindsided by rainstorms. You at least have some window of time to go, I think it's about to rain. And I'm imagining the disciples looked ahead and can see we're going to that side. Looks clear. He says, let's get in and go to the other side. Let's do it. I'm imagining if the disciples had seen dark clouds, had they felt a a sprinkle, they would have said, let's wait and hold off. Because the Sea of Galilee was known for tumultuous windstorms and rainstorms because of the way it was located. It was a certain number of miles below sea level, and there was a huge mountain. I think, if I remember, it's called the Herman Mountain that was two miles high. And so because of that difference, then uh, the wind and the waves and storms happened quite frequently. So it's not um, a crazy thing that a squall, as scripture will say, a squall would rise up and it would be crazy. But you would at least kind of smell something. And I'll get back to why I'm bringing that up a little bit later. Nevertheless, Jesus says, get into the boat and let's cross to the other side. So what he is saying is he's making a statement Isn't he? Jesus is making a statement. He's saying, let's cross to the other side. Now, what he did not say is, you think we can make it? (laughs) He didn't say, let's go over and let's beat the storm. He didn't say, I hope we can make it across. Let's give it our best shot. He didn't say anything like that, did he? He simply said, let's get in and cross to the other side. So if you're like me, and if you're like the disciples, and you can, one, can kind of see what's in front of you, and it looks all clear, and you sense God, at this point, they're still figuring out that He's God. They've not sensed that they've heard it, but you maybe have sensed or even have a strong conviction. God is saying, move forward, do this, whatever this is, go to the other side of the lake, and you do it. You, like me, might have the expectation that the trip is going to be smooth. I'm imagining these men got into the boat, other boats are with them, and they're thinking, all right, let's go five miles. It's going to take us X amount of time. I don't know how much time, but let's just do it. And their expectation, which is a critical thing that we understand today, their expectation is what? Smooth sailing. Smooth sailing. So I want you to take just a second before we move on in the passage, and I want to think about you, I want you to think about your own life for just a minute. When I married Jason, and I've said this before, we are we're cute people. We love Jesus. We were both on staff at a church. We had we listened to KSBJ. We had all ingredients for smooth sailing in our marriage. It was like, yeah, looking forward, looking ahead, it looks clear. We've gone through everything you could possibly go through. Affirmation from people that knew us and loved us. Uh, pre pre premarital counseling. Then premarital counseling. I mean, we just crossed our T's and dotted all of our I's. And so I'm thinking, not only am I expecting a first year of bliss, I deserve it. <laughs> I deserve it. It was not. We had a squall come up in our first year, and it was called Two Strong-Willed People Fighting for Their Turf. 
This is how it's going to be. This is how we close the shower curtain. This is the color of the coffee pot. We will or we won't have a dog. We blah, blah, blah. Ah! All, ah! Makes me, ugh. <laughs> Thank God for good Christian counselors, I will tell you. Anyway. So think about your own life. Think about when you got married. Maybe your first year was bliss, but I'd tell you, year seven, year 14, year two, you've had a hard year that you didn't see coming. Think about your life. When I graduated from college, I thought my sister and I would, like, I have a twin sister. We had shared a room until we graduated from college, and I thought she will move wherever I move. She moved to Philadelphia. I moved to Houston. I said, I'll go anywhere but Houston. So all of a sudden, my first day at work, I'm supposed to be at TC Gesture in 610, and I end up at the Ship Channel because I don't know how to drive in this town. Everything, and it was just, you know, just those, it's crazy. It's, it's, this is not what I expected my first job to feel or be like. Think about times in your life where you have stepped forward, and it's not been what you expected. One of my jobs, I got hired, and I thought, this is the great, I've landed the greatest job ever. First day, kid you not, co-worker says, your boss, when <clears throat> that person was on vacation, I won't say he or she, um, 14 of the subordinates went to the CEO and said, if you don't fire this person, we're going to walk out. And that's why you're, this person's only subordinate, because <laughs> they all got moved around. And I was like, oh my, seriously. And I'm not, I'm not, I can't make this stuff up. So whether it's a new career change or, or just maybe you moved, you moved into a new house thinking it'll be a fixer upper and it was a nightmare. Maybe you built a house. I don't know. I don't know. But I can tell you that if you've lived very long, you've experienced what it feels like to sense that you heard God. That, or at least you think this is the right decision to make, and then all of a sudden it is so painfully hard. Painfully hard that you think, what is wrong with me? Or what is wrong with him? Or what is wrong with this situation? How do I get out? How do I change this quickly? That is what we're experiencing here. When you see the disciples, that's what they're experiencing. They're going, oh my gosh, they would have never stepped into the boat had a storm been brewing. They're smart men. They do it for a living, which is another thing that exhibits the, the power of the Lord. So think about your own expectations in your life. Another one that I had was this year. I have a seven-year-old, precious, adorable gift from above little boy that is the most well-adjusted. I mean, I think he's perfect. When I take him to his new class, I just walk in and say, you're welcome. You're welcome. That's how I feel about my son and my daughter. I mean, with my daughter, I'm going to say she's going to cause trouble, but she's so fun. But my, my seven-year-old, just out of the blue in October, and I've told many of you this, just came, just had this crippling anxiety that he had. To, and I'm like, he's seven. He should be worried about T-ball. What? Those kinds of storms that come in and you think, I can't fix this. Not only can I not fix this, this is going to kill me. This is going to kill me. Some of you have had miscarriages. You've lost children. You've lost spouses. You've lost jobs. You've lost, you've just, you've, you've lived life. You've lived life. And there are storms that come that feel like they come with a phone call. And you don't expect them or see them coming. That's what we're, we're dealing with. So they get in the boat. They leave. 
And it says in verse 37, a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling, already filling. They're feeling swamped. Maybe some of you feel swamped today. Verse 38, but he, meaning Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. He's asleep on a cushion. Now, here's the thing. Jesus is fully God and he's fully human. No human can be asleep on a cushion in a storm like that. Can't happen. Another thing I think I'm pointing to that we'll see is the power and the sovereignty of God. You see, here's what I think. I think he planned this whole thing. I think he planned this whole thing as a great teaching moment. Now, I don't know if that's true, so don't quote me on that. I know this is on this tape. I don't know if that's true. (laughs) But here's what we see about Jesus time and time again, is that he is always surprising. He is always unpredictable. He is always moving in ways that we cannot even expect. Oftentimes, we would not have chosen But he's always doing it to move us to a better place, to move us in faith, to move us along in freedom, to heal our broken heart, to to move us to a place of of, um, impact. He's always allowing things and orchestrating things in our life to move us closer to him, which moves us by being closer to him. That is what provides. He is healing. He is freedom. He is power. And so he's asleep on the cushion. The cushion. Granted, I'm sure he's tired. I know he's tired, but you're not. Just think when you're tired and you get on a plane and you think, I can't wait to sleep on this plane. And then there's turbulence and you're just so mad. You're just like, oh, I can't. There's no way he could. He, there's no way he could really be asleep in the squall. Squall. Use that in a sentence today. Squall. Figure out a way to drop that. <clears throat> so he's asleep on the cushion. And then they wake him, the disciples, and they say two things to him. Teacher, do you not care? And we are perishing. Another translation says this. They wake him up and they say, don't you care And that we are going to die? So here's what the disciples are doing while he's asleep on the cushion They're experiencing real life. They are experiencing this storm in their lives that they did not expect. While trusting and moving with him, it was brought on. So they're simply obeying him, and here comes this storm that they probably could have never seen coming and don't feel like they deserved. And you know they don't feel that way because there's a sense of entitlement when they look at him and say, don't you care? Have you ever been in a storm in your life and God seems like he must be sleeping? He, I, I can tell you I have. And I think, Lord, you must be cozied up and asleep on a cushion and not aware of what is going on in my life that I think is about to take me under. I think this storm is about to drown me. And that's how they felt. This is literally going to take us under. And they're looking at him and they're making two accusations. One, you don't love us. You don't love us because if you loved us, this wouldn't be happening. 
Hence, why don't you care? Second thing is, we're going to die. We're going to die. Have you looked at your circumstances at times in your life and thought, this will kill me. This will kill me. This will kill me. Maybe you've written a name in there. <laughs> I thought that my first year of marriage. He'll kill me. He's going to. Not literally. So they've made two statements to Jesus. What does Jesus do in verse 39? Keep trekking with me. He awakes and he rebukes the wind and says to the sea, Peace be still. The power and the terminology that he uses here is the same that he has used to, um, to shut up demons. So he stands up with all the power and he says, Peace be still. And the wind ceased. Two things happen. The wind ceases. Have you ever been on a boat and it's windy and then the wind calms down, but the water is still moving for quite a while after the wind? The wind can be still now, but the water is still reverberating. He does two things to exhibit his power. The wind stops, which could have happened naturally, but the water could not have happened naturally. So he calms the wind, and then it is dead calm on the sea. Have you ever gone water skiing at the break of the morning when it's just glass? It's the greatest, isn't it? Glass. That's what's now happened. So they have gone from crazy and tumultuous to peace and calm. No one can do that in your life, in my life, but Jesus. No one can do that. And y'all, I've tried so many different things to help bring calm and peace. Only Jesus brings you the calm that you know that you need and the peace. He says, peace, be still, and instantly it is calm. What is he doing for these disciples right now? What is his intention? He's, he's, first of all, he's trying to help them understand who he is. And so he's been healing people. They've seen that. And so they recognize something's different. But for him to exhibit that kind of power, he has to be God. He doesn't say, peace, be still in the name of Jesus, I rebuke you. He says, peace, be still. Why? Because he's not borrowing power. He is power. He is power. And he needs them to understand he is power. Why? Because if they think this storm is unexpected, he knows they're going to see the cross. He knows they're going to witness the crucifixion. And they're going to watch him hang. And they're going to watch blood drip down. And they're going to watch him be whipped. And they're going to watch that. And they're going to think because of what they're seeing and experiencing, it's over. It's over. And so what is he doing? He is building their faith. He's building their faith. Do you remember what he did when he fed the 5,000? That's what we talked about week one. When he fed the 5,000, he took the, no, that was yet, that last, last week. He took the bread and he broke it and then he multiplied it. And he's showing them that breaking is really blessing. He broke it in order to be multiplied. He was broken for our transgressions. This is my body broken for you. After they fed the 5,000, they started, remember? And it wasn't just 5,000. It was women and children also. So it was more than 5,000. That was just the number of the men. So after he takes two fish, five loaves, which was not enough, breaks it, multiplies it, 
feeds everyone, has 12 baskets left over. Now think about leftover bits of fish. Is, I don't know that that's going to taste good tomorrow. <laughs> leftover bites of bread, maybe, but it probably gets stale real quickly. But he says, save the scraps, put them all, save them all. And I just wonder, again, this is my, I'm thinking this, I'm wondering if he did this to help build their faith, knowing they're going to be out on the sea and they're going to experience a storm. But what he's given them is a reminder of, oh, wait a second, he can do that, he can take care of this. So ladies, as you walk through life, don't forget what he's done in your life. Keep a journal. Create. That's why throughout scripture you see Jesus, especially in the Old Testament, men and women building altars. After they'd had an incredible encounter with the Lord, they built an altar. Do you remember when Hagar was all alone, pregnant, unwed, freaking out? Jesus, I mean, the Lord visits her, but they think it was Jesus as an angel visits her. And then she builds an altar and says, she, she names it Berlahai Roy because it says, my God who sees me, the God who sees why would she build that altar? Because she needs to remember because we forget. And so those disciples needed to save that nasty food for a little bit because they need to remember that he is all-powerful. He is all-powerful. And so he's trying to teach them and build their faith. Now I want to talk just for a second about faith. Because when Jesus, um, when they see that he's done this, first of all, they're freaked out by the storm. But then they see Jesus calm the storm and they're more freaked out. So their fear only grows because now they're like, we thought this was unmanageable and unpredictable. You're way unmanageable and unpredictable. We don't even know what to do with you. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. Let's talk about it now. Here's the thing. Life is going to happen to us, is it not? Life is going to happen. And here's the thing. Nature... The storms are going to come. But that storm doesn't love you. Jesus is like a storm sometimes in our lives, isn't he? He does not jump through our hoops. He does not ask my permission to move in my life. I've already surrendered it to him. So he gets free reign in my life. From that point on, he doesn't have to ask permission. And he moves in waves that feel like a storm in my life. What's the difference? The difference is he's proven his love for me on the cross. And so here's someone that's moving in my life, allowing things to come into my life, orchestrating things to come into my life that are painful, unpleasant, feel like they're going to snap me like a twig. And yet what I have to remember is he loves me, untamably so. Crazy, crazy love me. That's the difference. That's why our faith goes off the rails. Because when we're in the middle of a storm, we like the disciples forget that. And we say, don't you love me? Because if you love me, you wouldn't let this happen. And see, here's the thing. If you've given your life to Christ, you don't get the right anymore to go, mm, prove your love. Prove it. If you love me, you'd provide this for me. If you love me, you'd take this away from me. If you love me, you would help me skip over this and not have to go through it. If you love me. And so God is constantly still on trial. And he's like, let me tell you something. I've already been on trial. Done. Tetelestai. It is finished. And so when he hung on the cross, he's like, listen, Laura, I know that you will feel like I love you if I make this all work out in your life. 
But honey, you got to grow up in your faith. And by spiritual maturity means I can now look at the cross and go, He loves me. He loves me. I don't feel that today. But I know that's truth. And I'm not going to allow myself to go back to the place of freaking out again and going, He loves me. I don't think He loves me. Oh, He loves me. No, He doesn't. Are you like me and you've thought, you know what, Lord, y'all, for years I resisted really surrendering my life to the Lord because I thought if I do, he's going to allow something really painful and hard to come into my life. Or he's going to send me to Africa. Or he's going to make me marry that weird guy at the singles groups that stands in the corner. You know, the, the creep, they, he exists. I'm sorry. I know he's loved, but you've seen him. And I thought the Lord's going to make me marry him and show that this is, you know, I just thought there's some thing that was broken in me that caused me to see him as a God that was untrustworthy. And that I can look back and go, that's from different wounds that have come into my life. There's all sorts of reasons. Here's the thing. You will never give your life over to him if you're not convinced that he loves you. And I'm telling you this, is that in the beginning of your faith, the Lord is gracious enough and will do a lot of things circumstantially that cause you, you know, just the song on the radio comes on at the right time or you read the devotional at the right time, blah, 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 blah. All of that is good and gracious of the Lord. He doesn't have to do any of that. He doesn't have to do any of that for us. He has proven His love for you and me on the cross. So my encouragement to you is not to keep looking for a sign. Look at the cross. Look at the cross. Study it. Research it. Think about it. Let it soak into who you are. And understand, He did that for me. If I were the only person, He would have died for me. Personalize it. Make it intimate. He loves you passionately. And then you read the rest of Scripture through that and you're overwhelmed by how much He loves you. And then you look at your circumstances and now you have perspective. And now you can get up in the morning and you can say, this is hard, this feels gray, this feels foggy, I can't see five more feet in front of me, I don't know how this is going to work out, I don't know any, we still have no direction, we still don't have the answer, the solution. We're still struggling with this. But I know that He is sovereign, which means He's all-powerful, He's all-knowing. I know that He is good, and I know that He loves me. And that is what He's trying to teach the disciples. And so I think He allowed them to get in that boat, and He called or allowed that storm to come, obviously, for a teaching moment. So one, they could see He has power that no one else has. He's our source, and He's calming it for us. And when Jesus looks at them and says, why are you so afraid? Do you know the phrase, be not afraid or don't fear, is repeated more than any other phrase in Scripture? Because we are fearful sheep. Do you know sheep are the most fearful animal there is? So He's saying, don't be afraid. The second thing He says is, have you still no faith? Now, here's one thing I want to say before we close. I have about two minutes The thing about faith, y'all, is we keep thinking we need more faith. I just, if I had more faith, if I had more faith, then I wouldn't struggle with this. Okay, I read this in, in a book I'll show you in just a second, this analogy that I thought was really, really helpful. If you are falling from the sky, 
You're falling and you're about to splat on the ground and you pass a tree with a big limb coming out. Are you going to grab for that limb? Mm-hmm. You are. Now, is it so critical that before that limb is going to hold you, you've got to be able to articulate and say, I have full and total confidence that that limb is going to hold me. No, that's not how you even feel. You're thinking, dear God, I hope that limb is strong enough, but I don't really have, I don't have time to think about that right now. I'm grabbing it. I'm grabbing it for dear life. And, and this is the thing. Faith is a gift from God. If you have Christ, you have faith. If you have Christ, you have faith. And so what's critical to understand that it's not the amount of faith you have. It's the object of your faith. What do you have faith in? Okay? And so instead of working yourself up to have more faith in Jesus, just focus on Jesus. And remind yourself that he's worthy of your faith. He has said the faith of a mustard seed could move a mountain. The author, it comes from him. He gives you faith. You've got all the faith that you need. Scripture is very clear about that. Read Ephesians 1 through 4 and it talks about all that we've been given in Christ Jesus. You've got all the faith you need. And the second thing that Jesus is, is he's the perfecter of our faith. He orchestrated that for the disciples. Why? To help perfect their faith. Right? So instead of the disciples going, oh, I wish I had more faith. We wish we had more faith. They just said, who is this? That even the wind and the waves obey him. They just seen him feed 5,000. They just seen him heal people. And yet they're still going, I didn't even know you were, I didn't even know that was part of who you were. Let Jesus be the greatest love affair in your life. Spend more time focusing on him. If you, okay, a lot of people are like, I love Revelation. I want to read Revelation. Read any part of the Bible. That is great. But spend the majority of your time in the Gospels. If you have to choose, if you're pinched for time, get in the Gospels and stay there. And ask the Lord to show you who he is in ways that you didn't see before. That is what helps. Instead of praying about the storm, fix your eyes on Jesus, and that enables you to see the storm the way he sees it. He's not asking you to like the storm. He's not asking you to buck up and not be afraid. The storm will be fearful. I mean, it will be scary. It will be scary. The cross was horrific. But he's saying, fix your eyes on me. I've got this. Keep watching me. You know, if you've got a T-baller, you're like, keep your eye on the ball. Keep your eye on him. If you're in the middle of a storm today, you will not stay there forever. One is because you're going to heaven. And so while you may not get the healing that you want on this side of heaven, it will not be for eternity that you're struggling with whatever you're struggling with. It may not even be another week. He may heal you in the room today. You may walk out with the perspective that you needed to be lifted, and you go, whoa, okay. I don't know what his timetable is for you and me, but if there's a storm in your life, make sure you're focused on the right thing. The power that can say, peace, be still. Pour out your heart to him. Pray about the storm. But in the end of the day, let your focus remain on him, who he is, what he has done for you, what he says about you, what his plans are for you. They are plans to prosper you and not to harm you, 
plans to give you a hope and a future. Therefore, regardless of what I see and regardless of how I feel, my trust is in Jesus. It has to be or I'm going to go under. I will sink and you will sink. So together, our trust is in who? Jesus. Jesus. All right, let me pray for us. Father, we are sheep. We are women that are fearful. We are women that battle a lot. We are women that have a lot on our plate. We are women that are longing for a lot of things. And we are women that have storms in our lives right now. And I pray, God, that you would show us a clearer picture of who you are, that we follow a God that created us in the universe. You are all-powerful. And I pray, Lord, that that alone would bring us comfort and peace today. And, Lord, I just lift up everyone in the room that has a storm that is in their lives right now, that they're smack dab in the middle. And I ask, Lord, by the power of your name, that you would say, peace, calm, be still. And I pray that they would experience relief very quickly. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, ladies. This is the book that I has been very helpful to me. Tim Keller. It's called Jesus the King. It was originally um, published as The King's Cross. Awesome, awesome book. It's basically a commentary on the book of Mark. So if you want to start reading, if you need to know where to go, start reading the book. Y'all leave if you have to. Start reading the book of Mark, but you read this along with it. So